Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. The first reading is from Isaiah chapter 45, verses 1 to 8. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and strip kings of their robes, to open doors before him and the gates shall not be closed. I will go before you and level the mountains. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and riches hidden in secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I surname you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me. There is no God. I arm you, though you do not know me so that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make weal and create woe. I, the Lord, do all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above and let the skies rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation may spring up and let it cause righteousness to sprout up also. I, the Lord, have created it. The second Bible reading is from Romans, verses 13, 1 to 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has anointed, and those who resists will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive its approval, for it is God's servant for you a good, for your good. But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid, for the, for the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore one must be subject not only because of wrath, not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, busy with this very thing. Pay to all what is due to due them, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honour to whom honour is due. Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name's Richard. I'm the site pastor here at St. John's uh, in Ashfield, uh, one of those three sites that makes up Christchurch Inner West. Um, my job's just to, you know, hang out with you guys here in Ashfield at 10 and 6 and um, uh, oversee the ministries that happen here. Uh, let me add my welcome to Louise as well. Really great to have you here this evening as we gather uh, together to, to worship the, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus, uh, the, the true and mighty ruler over everything. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about tonight uh, as we get into this passage from Romans chapter 13. Uh, as you may have remembered, I'm just count this as your reminder if you've forgotten. As you may have remembered, we have a federal election coming up on the 21st of May. Everyone knew that, right? No one's forgotten. Excellent. Election, 21st of May, don't forget. I want to ask a question about it. Um, what will actually change? What will change on that day? What will change when Australia elects a government? When I was in my early 20s, uh, I actually was of the opinion that elections could change quite a lot indeed. 
very, very important. Uh, my political consciousness had been awakened at university, you see, as an arts student especially. And I was passionately convinced that the federal election of 2007 would change the world. Uh, Labor leader Kevin Rudd, Kevin07 to his friends, uh, was going to finally do something about climate change and bring compassion to our treatment of refugees and transform Indigenous relations in our country. I quite literally had the T-shirt. I wore it to every EU public meeting I could. I wore it to my small groups. I wore it to church events. And I would talk anyone's ear off about how great Kevin Rudd was and how he was going to change the world. Kevin 07 won, of course, and it started so well. It started so well, but it didn't last. Uh, eventually, he was knifed in the back by his own party, and he, in turn, knifed Julia Gillard in the back to get the prime ministership back, and it all just kind of turned into a whole mess of awfulness and disaster, pretty much. Uh, he went on to, uh, of course, repudiate a whole bunch of the policies that I'd been excited about in the first place. And I'll tell you what, at the time I was a member of the, uh, the Labor Party, a card-carrying member of the Labor Party, and I resigned my membership in protest and wrote him and, the, uh, and my local member, Anthony Albanese, uh, wrote them a sternly worded email saying, this is why I'm, I'm leaving the party, and I'm sure they remember it to this day. Needless to say, this trajectory for me over a couple of years was an important lesson for young Richard in realistic expectations of politics and government in our world in this age. Uh, Australians tend to have a fairly ambivalent relationship to government, I think. Uh, we see it really overall, if you ask most Australians what they think about the government, you go, they're a bit annoying. They kind of just get in the way a little bit, don't they? They have stupid, annoying rules about things that you have to follow despite the fact they don't make much sense. And once a year, you've got to interrupt your Saturday. You go and put a piece of paper in a thing, at least you get a sausage out of it. Most Australians, I think, have a fairly ambivalent relationship to government. They don't seem to do a lot of good a lot of the time. And yet, at the same time, if the, if the issue is right, if we're in the right frame of mind, we expect a lot of our governments, don't we? We expect them to keep a handle on the economy, often expect them to do things which, frankly, not even a government is in control of. We want them to legislate for the particular rights that we think are most basic and central, and often the ones, of course, that are going to be most useful for us personally. Uh, we do sometimes expect governments really actually to change the world. Uh, and if they could avoid a kind of rank corruption along the way, maybe behave with a bit of kind of, uh, you know, adultness along the way, that'd be an added bonus, wouldn't it? Maybe you're someone who does, uh, like young Richard, have high hopes uh, for the possibilities of democratic politics to change the world. Maybe you think it's all just a massive waste of time or maybe, to be honest, you just frankly couldn't care less and you don't really think about it at all. Uh, all three of those things get government wrong. That's what we're going to hear from Romans 13 tonight. We're back in Paul's letters to the Romans, uh, which uh, we've been working through the last few years. We're in the last section, the run to the finish now. And we pick up in this kind of weird spot, actually, talking about government. Uh, at the heart of this letter to the Romans, you might remember, is the gospel message that Paul has been declaring and explaining how it actually changes the world. This is what changes the world here, the gospel. He writes, If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10 verse 9. What we're going to see today from Romans 13 is that the particular perspective that the gospel actually gives us on government, on politics in our world. 
How it is that the announcement that Jesus is the Lord, the true Lord, the King of kings, the sovereign ruler over all things, how that changes our relationship to the governing authorities of the world. And the headline is this, from the, right up from the heart of today's uh, passage uh, in verse 4. Uh, the governing authorities, Paul writes, are God's servant for your good. For your good. Do you think about that often when you think about the government? You think, ah, great, they're here to do something good for me. That's what Paul says. That's what government's all about. We're going to unpack that uh, teaching under three headings, uh, which you'll see up here on the slide. Firstly, uh, what is it that government's good for? Secondly, what about when government goes bad? And thirdly, therefore, how should we relate to government? Let's go and start at the beginning. Uh, I want you to notice a few things about that phrase that I just mentioned right in the middle of this little passage, verse 4. The governing authorities are God's servant for your good. Uh, Firstly, notice that uh, according to the scriptures, government serves God. It's important to see uh, that this assertion uh, flows actually directly out of the heart of the gospel. Uh, When Jesus came, of course, his message was that the kingdom of God has drawn, uh, is at hand. And the apostles, reflecting on how God's kingdom had come through the death and resurrection of Jesus, proclaimed that Jesus Christ is Lord, a title usually reserved actually for the Roman emperor. The gospel is about God's kingdom, God's rule, God's government. It's a profoundly political message at its heart. God has made this Jesus king and judge over the world. And he calls everyone to come under his rule as his loyal subjects. What that means at the very beginning is that political leaders and the governments that they lead can never have our total and unquestioning allegiance. They're not the true Lord The uh, Anglican Book of Common Prayer from the 17th uh, century has this beautiful prayer uh, for the Queen of England, who also is the the head of the Anglican Church. So she prays this every day. Listen to how it goes. It begins. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, high and mighty, King of kings, Lord of lords, the only ruler of princes, who dost from thy throne behold all dwellers upon the earth, most heartily we beseech thee with thy favour to behold our most sovereign lady, Queen Elizabeth. She's really getting put in her place, you see. God is high and mighty, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the only ruler of princes. Look at our little queen. Be nice and gracious to her, please. Can you imagine praying that every day as the the Queen of England? The point is that if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not, and Queen Elizabeth is not, and Joe Biden is not, and Vladimir Putin is not, and Scott Morrison is not. The gospel relativizes the position of every political authority, every president and prime minister and monarch. It's merely a servant of God. They answer to him. But secondly, know that they're servants given by God with a specific purpose. They are for your good. What is the nature of that good? What is it that's good about government as God gives it? Let me read for you from verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what's good and you'll receive its approval. For it's God's servant for your good. But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid, for the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It's the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. So what does government do? It's God's servant for your good, and God's servant to execute wrath. It judges, you see, between right and wrong. That's government's job. It punishes wrongdoing. It praises those who do good. And, of course, it has the power to enforce those judgments. That's what bearing the sword means here. Uh, This is true of any kind of government, actually. God authorises political authority, whatever form it comes, whether it's a a monarchy, whether it's a one-man government, whether it's a a democracy like ours. 
In our particular form of government, what, what happens is that you've got courts who hand down decisions based on the laws that our uh, parliaments have made and who enforce those laws through the, the, the law enforcement uh, agencies, police forces of various kinds. In other words, if you like, the good of government as given by God is to maintain order and justice so that you and I can, for the most part, walk down the street without being afraid. Uh, let me give you a little example. Uh, one of my brothers, not Sam, one of my other brothers, uh, he went on exchange to North Carolina for a semester during university, and as you do on exchange, you fell in love with a girl and blah, blah, all those kind of things. They dated just long enough for her to come and visit Australia for a little while. He was living in Newtown, uh, here in the inner west, uh, while, uh, while she was here visiting. And they had this bizarre interaction as they walked down King Street in Newtown. He could see that she was terrified. She was really scared. She was kind of looking this way and that, trying not to make eye contact with anyone, but to make sure that she could see who was around. He said, what, what's wrong? What's going on? She said, what if someone has a gun? And then this bizarre conversation happened where my brother said, but they don't. And she said, but what if they do? And he said, but they don't. And she said, but what if they do? And he said, but they don't. <laughs> they, just, they just don't. Governments make decisions about law and order, right? And different kinds of decisions affect the, our experience of life. In North Carolina, you can have a concealed carry permit. As long as you tick the boxes, no questions asked. And anyone on the street walking around, you could have a gun. We don't have that in Australia, right? And so actually your experience of walking down the street is often quite different. God gives government the task of providing order rather than chaos. And note that we're to happily pay our taxes to them so that they can get about that work. That's what your taxes are for, so that they can do their job of making things actually as easy for you as possible. It's worth noting here, actually, uh, the contrast with what was said right at the end of chapter 12. Do you remember Romans chapter 12? That was a while back, wasn't it? Middle last year, yeah? At the end of Romans chapter 12, verse 19, we read this. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Private vengeance, you see, isn't an option for Christians, for people who acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that God doesn't care about justice. Private vengeance, of course, would lead to chaos, wouldn't it? But you just go and punch in the face or shoot whoever it is who you think has done you wrong. But instead of that chaos, we get very uh, right here in the next passage in Romans 13, government described as the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. God is going to actually do justice. And one of the ways that he does that in this world is through the governments of who he appoints. So what is government good for? It punishes evil and promotes good by making laws, by establishing courts and enforcing its judgments. But there's a third thing worth noting about uh, the government here, and it's that three times in our English translation, we've referred to a few of these verses already, uh, the authorities are referred to as God's servant. Uh, there's two different Greek words used here. The first one that's used uh, twice is uh, diakonos, which throughout the New Testament is used to, to be, it's often translated as minister, as in me, what I do, what Louisa does, ministers in, in church contexts. Uh, the second word that's used is liturgoi, which means one who performs public service, sometimes in a temple setting, sometimes in kind of public administration. It kind of literally means public servant. What we're being told here, you see, is that public servants are God's ministers for the good of his world, doing his work in the world. Uh, you've got to remember, as you read this, that Paul's writing in the context of the Roman Empire, uh, early in the reign, actually, of Emperor Nero, uh, who seems like he had a lot of promise at the beginning, but became, in the end, one of the most brutal persecutors of Christians that history has ever known. 
Paul's writing in the context of a governing authority that he knows would never acknowledge Jesus as Lord and would never think of itself as God's servant. No, no, the Roman Empire, that's where the buck stopped. And yet, he says, they're God's servant for our good. You see the same actually in the passage we had read from uh, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. Cyrus, the king of Persia, Israel's oppressor, is called the Lord's anointed, the one who God has anointed to do his good work. Even though, as Isaiah says in, in that passage, even though he doesn't know it. What this is getting at is that whether governments are quote-unquote Christian or not, God can and does use them for good in his world. Uh, God is doing, you see, and we, we know this, we all know this, we talk about this all the time. God's doing good out there in the world, isn't he? Not only here in the church, we refer to it as common grace. And so, public servants in the room, take heart, you are God's ministers doing his good work in the world, you really are. And art students, you'll likely be public servants one day, so take heart, your, your degree might actually lead somewhere. Serving God, doing his work in the world. Of course, it goes beyond even just the public service, doesn't it? That the governing authorities here are referred to as God's ministers doing his work is an encouragement, actually, to all of us in the work that God has given us, that, that you really do serve God in that work. He really does work in and through you to make his world good and better and more beautiful and contribute to society and the world around you. He even does it, actually, through your ratbag colleagues and through the annoying authorities around you who don't acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Uh, finally, if the governing authorities are God's servants, then there are a few more things we can say from here and from the Scriptures a bit more broadly, actually, just about what good government looks like. And, you know, we're going to talk later on in the, in the sermon just about how you bring all these things to bear on voting in just a little while, and these are some of the things that you'll need to keep in mind. Uh, here are some things we can say from the Scriptures about uh, what good government looks like. Uh, firstly, good government will, will make true judgments. Uh, that is, we know, we, we follow the one true and living God, the true Lord of the world, right? And that means there are actually things such as good and evil, right and wrong. And good government will actually make laws that, whether they do it for Christian reasons or not, will align with and reflect what God says about right and wrong in his world. Again, it doesn't mean that the government has to be Christian, but it means that there really is a right and wrong, and then good laws actually will reflect that. Uh, secondly, good government will be realistic about what it can achieve. Let me give you an, an example of, of what I mean by that. Christians know from God's word that lust is bad, right? Yes, they all nod. Everyone knows. Good. Excellent. Lust is bad. Despite the fact that we know that lust is bad, a government making a law against lustful thoughts would be a very bad idea. Really bad. Shouldn't do that. The reason is that no government can actually judge the thoughts and the hearts of one of their subjects, can they? They can't see inside there. They've got no capacity to make a judgment about that. At the same time, of course, no government has the power to pull a magic lever and make us all rich, even though there are areas of uh, economic policy where governments can be really effective. They're just things that government can't do. And so always beware any politician who promises that they really are going to change the world. They can't do it. And that means, of course, that we too will be modest in our expectations of government. It's easy to think that a change of government might change the world. Again, just ask younger me in the Kevin 07 days. But it turns out that only God can be trusted to establish the kingdom of God. Who would have thought? Sounds straightforward when you say it out loud, doesn't it? In a similar way, thirdly, good government will recognise that its authority is limited. That is, there's just whole areas of human experience and existence that it's not competent to judge, that it can't tell you what's right and wrong about. And that includes actually spiritual realities. Does God exist? 
If so, which one? Government can't tell you that. It's just it's above its pay grade. And so that means that, for example, a government's going to maintain freedom of religion if it's doing its job well, and freedom of expression, freedom of conversation, freedom of debate around all these kinds of things. Uh, lastly, the Bible also makes really clear that a good government will defend the poor and the vulnerable. Uh, here's just a couple of verses from the Proverbs for you. Proverbs 29, uh, verse 14, If a king judges the poor with equity, his throne will be established forever. Uh, Proverbs 31, verse 8 and 9, Speak out for those who cannot speak for the rights of all the destitute. Speak out, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. This is what government should do, the Scriptures say. And you add to that, of course, all the ways in which many of the Old Testament prophets uh, lambast Israel for their failure to actually do justice for the poor. That's often what God is most angry about uh, with the leaders uh, of his people, Israel. So there's four things that good government will do. They'll make true judgments, they'll be realistic about what they can achieve, recognise that their authority is limited, defend the poor and the vulnerable. But what about when government goes bad? Uh, Paul, at the very beginning of this passage, well, three verses in anyway, he writes, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? He writes, then do what is good and you'll receive its approval. Simple, right? No government's ever punished people for doing the right thing. Hmm, doesn't stack up with our experience, does it? I mean, you know, here things, we've, we've got things pretty good here, but we know from history and from watching the news that this is not how governments always go. We know that there are governments that oppress and kill their own people for speaking up against injustice or because they worship in the wrong way or because they belong to the wrong group of people. So what are we to do with a, with a verse like this? Uh, firstly, notice that Paul's main purpose here in Romans 13 seems to be to encourage the Christians in Rome uh, not to jeopardise their Christian witness by causing trouble unnecessarily. Uh, this is written in a context where uh, the Jews had been kicked out of Rome under a previous emperor and were now being allowed back into the city. And they'd been kicked out in part because of some rights that had broken out that got blamed, rightly or wrongly, uh, on, on the Jewish people. Paul seems to be saying here, yes, 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 I know that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, but actually we want people to be able to hear that message and to see what it looks like lived out in the community. So don't go making unnecessary trouble for yourself and getting thrown in jail. As he's already said in the previous chapter, the Lord Jesus didn't take vengeance even against his murderers, his attackers, and so neither should you. Let God take care of that in his own way, including through the governing authorities. But secondly, and this is really important actually, this is kind of revolutionary in the history of political thinking, this next thing that I'm going to say. Notice that what Paul is actually doing here is radically limiting the role that government has in the world. Uh, no government is ultimate, he says, because Jesus is Lord and as God's servants, they have really this one job to judge between good and evil so that people can get about living their lives and to enforce those judgments where necessary. Throughout history, of course, many governments have wanted to do far more than that. Many governments have thought, we're going to be the ones who are going to create a beautiful, lasting, world-changing civilization for all time. It never goes well. Think of the Third Reich, uh, the uh, Thousand-Year Reich, as it was called, uh, in uh, the days of Hitler's Nazi Party, or of uh, Mao's Great Leap Forward in China, or the complete domination of all aspects of social life by the government in North Korea today. You see what's happening here as Paul talks about government as God's servant to do this specific job? He says to those governing authorities, you're my servant and you've exceeded your mandate if you do more than that. You have gone too far. You have taken privileges upon yourself that are not yours. You're doing a job that hasn't been given to you to do. 
Add to that, of course, that as with any Bible passage, we've got to read this one in, in context, and it turns out that there are other things the Scriptures have to say about government than just what's here in Romans 13. One of those places is uh, in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, uh, where there's this horrific description of uh, a dragon that calls a beast out of the ocean, and the beast then calls another beast out of the earth, and it actually kind of transforms into a totalitarian government which controls all military and economic power and forces people to worship it. It's, uh, it's uh, John of the Apocalypse's little picture, actually, of the Roman government is, is what's going on there. The Bible actually here describes government gone horribly wrong as demonic, as possessed by the evil one. And you can see that that's what, what happens when any government asks its subjects to give it their absolute allegiance. Christians can never do that, of course. We know that. We know that there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. We are, as Paul puts it in Philippians, citizens of heaven. That's where our allegiance lies. And so that means that Christians, even somewhere like Australia, where our government overall is very good, even somewhere like this, we're always going to hold government a little bit at arm's length, with a bit of critical distance, evaluating what the government does in the light of God's laws and judgments. Paul writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Uh, but given the wider testimony of the Bible, we can say there really are times when the governing authorities can and even should be resisted and disobeyed when governments actually exceed their God-given mandate, uh, then there's a place for, for what you might call principled civil disobedience. Uh, so, for example, um, here's me. Uh, this is me uh, being uh, escorted by um, a very uh, portly police officer, if I may say that, um, out of uh, Malcolm Turnbull's electoral office in Wallara back in the day when he was a lowly MP, wasn't even Prime Minister yet. I'd been participating in a, uh, a sit-in. We'd, we'd walked into Malcolm Turnbull's office in the morning and sat down and said, we're not going to give us what we want. Uh, we were uh, urging the government to release uh, children from off offshore immigration detention. Uh, it was my view then and still is now, that, uh, along, along with many others, that the government had failed dismally, actually, to judge right from wrong at this point when it came to their treatment of refugees arriving in Australia by boat. And yet at the same time, it really is my conviction and seems to be borne out by the scriptures that uh, this kind of disobedience should be infrequent and targeted at actual changes you're after and respectful and peaceful. And so when the police picked us up to take us out, we didn't resist, we, we followed them out. Well, followed, not quite followed, but, you know, didn't resist too much. There's a whole theory of civil disobedience behind this uh, called non-violent direct action. And the, the greatest exponent of it, uh, of course, was the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, leader of the civil rights movement in America in the 1960s. Uh, there's a famous piece of writing by uh, MLK uh, called The Letter from Birmingham Jail, uh, which he wrote when he was in Birmingham Jail, having been arrested for participating in uh, civil disobedience. And while he was there, he wrote uh, this letter in response to an open letter from some uh, white Christian leaders denouncing the movement's law-breaking. They'd said, you know what, we'd take you more seriously if you didn't break those laws. Uh, here's what uh, Martin Luther King writes in response to them, in part. He says, In no sense do I advocate evading or defying the law. That would lead to anarchy. One who breaks an unjust law must do so openly, lovingly, and with a willingness to accept the penalty. I submit that an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice, is in reality expressing the highest respect for the law. Now you see what he's saying there? He's saying there are laws actually that are unjust, and yet actually God has given these authorities, and so we must submit to them. 
And the way that plays out in practice is, if, you know, if you disobey a law because it's unjust, that's fine. You should also be willing to accept the consequences of that. Uh, but as I said, in, in a targeted way, right, there's a, there's a purpose behind all of this. Uh, and in his words, in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice, to draw attention, if you like, to the injustice that's being done here in the hopes that government will actually stop doing evil and instead do good. Expressing the highest respect for the law, calling the government actually to make good laws where bad laws uh, at the moment exist. There's a bunch of examples of this kind of engagement with governing authorities in the Bible, actually. Uh, the midwives in Egypt who refused to follow Pharaoh's orders to kill the baby Hebrews. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego and Daniel uh, in, in the book of Daniel who refused to worship and pray to the Babylonian king and so are thrown in the furnace and thrown in a den of lions. Principle, non-violent civil disobedience because some laws really are unjust. Uh, here in Romans 13, uh, though, it's pretty clear that Paul's desire is for us to understand that the governing authorities, even though it can go badly wrong, are in principle given by God for our good. That's what he wants us to know. And so disobedience is not to be the usual attitude of Christians toward the governing authorities. And so that brings us to point three. How then should we actually relate to the government? Uh, the way we should generally relate to the government as servants of the Lord Jesus is laid out for us, kind of bookends this passage a little bit in verse 1 and verse 7. Verse 1 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And verse 7 says, pay to all what is due to them, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honour to whom honour is due. Paul says, pay your taxes, so does Jesus. We can leave that one to one side. Governments need money to do the job that God's given them to do. Pretty straightforward, really. But three other things I want to draw your attention to out of those verses. Those words, be subject, respect, and honour. That's the basic posture that we should have toward the governing authorities. What does it actually look like in practice? Uh, most fundamentally, it's going to mean actually just obeying the laws of the land and even actually obeying laws that we might disagree with, even though they might not make a whole lot of sense to us, even though they seem a little bit silly or arbitrary or over the top. If a law is not clearly unjust or evil, then actually we'll acknowledge that the government still has responsibility, authority from God to make laws like this, and so we'll follow along. Uh, here's a prime example for you. Uh, our staff team at Christchurch in the West were away uh, for uh, some staff planning days this week, and our boss, Andrew Cade, got COVID. Great. It turns out that despite the fact that all nine of us who were there were sitting around one dining table together all day for two days, only the three of us who slept in the same house down the road as Andrew were technically close contacts. And so, you know, we've been taking our rat tests every day, we've been wearing our masks when we go, when we go out, you see me taking my mask on and off tonight, all those kinds of things. And I tell you what, so many times myself and the other site passers, Angus and Dave, this week have been like, ah, oh, stupid mask, I'm just not going to wear it. Oh, wait. I'm preaching in Romans 13 this week. Be subject to the governing authorities. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an annoying rule. I don't know whether it actually makes any difference or not for me to be wearing my mask when I'm in here tonight. But it's not an evil law. It's not unjust. And the government has every right and the authority that God has given them to make that law. And so, you know, well, the right thing actually to do is to follow it. Uh, not just uh, out of um, uh, fear, of course, as Paul says, but because of conscience. Right? Well, if God's the authority and if God's given them authority, then, then actually the right thing for me to do is to follow it. So obey the law, right? Pretty straightforward for the most part. In addition to that, a respect and honour is going to mean that we'll refrain from the kind of name-calling and derision that characterises so much of our political discourse. I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever noticed that in Australia we have this um, 
kind of default habit of calling our governing authorities and those who lead them by their first name, Johnny, back in the day, Kevin, Julia, Tones, Malcolm, ScoMo. I think it's our particularly Australian way of asserting that those ruling over us, they're not better than we are. Whatever they are, they're not better than we are. Don't think of that for a moment. They're just one of us who've got a special job to do. The Bible actually thinks that, tr- uh, that too, right? And yet, while that might be true, they do have a particular role that's been given them by God that we should respect. So I wonder, actually, if a habit of referring to our prime ministers by their title and surname might help us actually to, to inculcate some of that respect that we should have for them as our governing authorities. Maybe that's a good practice to get into. I say to myself, I actually spoke to someone after the 10 a.m. service this morning, and we started talking about Albo and about Kevin 07 back in the day. I was like, oh, wait, hang on. I was just talking about referring them as prime minister, wasn't I? Whoops. So, you know, a word for me as well. But we should respect them. We should speak well of them. We shouldn't actually slander them. Even when we disagree with them, actually our response should be to assume that they're trying to do the job that God has given them to do. And so to respect them in that. If you need any incentive uh, to do better at this, uh, just note that overall the Americans do this much better than we do. The Americans, no matter what political party they come from, whatever their perspective, the president is always Mr. President, no matter your politics. And surely we can't let the Americans be better than us at this, right? Come on, we can do better. There's an incentive for you. So firstly, be subject, respect and honour the authorities. Uh, Secondly, uh, if government's given by God for our good, then we actually should be doing all we can to help government do the job that God tells us he's given them to do. This is actually the the shape, actually, that all Christian engagement with politics should take. The goal should be to help government be good, according to what the scriptures say good government is. For our own good, of course, and for the good of others around us as well. As worshippers of the God who grants all authority and servants of the one true Lord, we should see our earthly citizenship as an opportunity to call and encourage the authorities to, to just be really good at what God has called them to do. That's going to mean at the basic level actually participating in the political processes uh, that, um, that we're invited into. Uh, disinterest isn't really an option for Christians. Uh, in God's kindness, of course, we happen to live in a time and place where uh, we can actually have an impact on the way and type of government that's, that's over us, even if it's only very, very limited, very small. So, you know, when there are things come up and you go, I think that's a bad law, or even actually I think that's a really good thing government's doing there, I want to encourage them in that, call your, your political representatives, email them, seek to visit them and talk to them about uh, the issues that are, that are on your heart that you want to see them address. Sign petitions, attend peaceful protests when that's appropriate. And even, of course, those rare moments of civil disobedience are going to be, again, targeted to encourage the government toward the good that God has called them to. Of course, we should bear all these things also in mind as we vote in the the not-too-distant future. Some of you will start voting in the next few weeks if you want to get your pre-polling in. Uh, Notice that even though we have a federal election coming up next month, and we talked about it right back at the start, but kind of the the bit about voting comes right at the end here, and that's because I want us to be careful to to remember that actually your your vote is only one very tiny part of your political engagement. Actually, there's other things that are are at least as important. Don't don't think that just because you've voted once every four years that that actually your job is done as a citizen, right? The Bible has, has more for you to do than that. Nonetheless, we should think about how the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one true and living Lord impacts the way that we vote and how a vote can encourage good government. So we're going to consider whether a party's policies do actually tell the truth about a particular issue. Does this party's policies on, on climate change actually reflect what's, what, what I, as far as I can see, is true about climate change, or is it just kind of made-up guff? 
How does this party's policies uh, seek to treat the poor and the vulnerable, the, the mentally ill, the homeless, people with disabilities, Aboriginal Australians? Uh, how trustworthy are these particular people who we're electing and the parties to which they belong? I think actually in our country at the moment, um, integrity, uh, anti-corruption initiatives, they, they're just actually really vital to feeling like you can trust the government in order for them to actually then act with authority. And so any opportunity we have to encourage governments to be good at, at, at seeking to get rid of corruption and increase integrity, that's a really important thing. And of course, as we've said already, we're going to be very wary of parties and politicians who promise the world who promise really actually to change things in a massive, earth-shattering way and everything's going to be beautiful if you just elect us. They can't do it. Only God can establish the kingdom of God. All of these things matter far more than who will give me the biggest tax break and even more than whether or not a particular party or candidate is a Christian. This is our way of trying to actually see how the things that the Bible says make good government should impact then the way that we engage with them. Absolutely most fundamentally of all, though, we're going to engage with government by praying for it. We're commanded to do this in another of Paul's letters where he picks up really similar themes. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, for a reason, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. Uh, good government, you see, when God answers that prayer will make it possible to feel safe walking down the street for the most part. So we can get on with life, with living a, a quiet and peaceable life. But there's even more than that, of course. Uh, Paul continues, uh, he writes, This is right and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We're to pray for good government because good government gives us space, you see, to live out the kind of life that shows the world that Jesus really is the one true Lord. In the end, the most powerful political engagement for any Christian is to live a life that's totally devoted to King Jesus, you see, that witnesses to the power of his grace and love as citizens of heaven. The best way to encourage governments to be good is to give them a real-life example of a community who live under the true and right, perfect, good and beautiful judgments of the Lord Jesus, who live under the rule of God and his government. Uh, the reason, of course, for that, and the reason that you would do that, right, the reason that you would live that kind of life is that the rule of King Jesus is the only government that can always be trusted to govern for your good, you see. Government's given for your good, and yet we know that it goes bad. Not so with Jesus. How do you know that that's true? How are you going to actually live the kind of life subject to the authorities as imperfect as they are that God gives and yet utterly devoted to the authority of Jesus? You can do it because he's made himself subject to the injustice of death on a cross because he's borne God's wrath against every evil done by governing authorities and every sin that we've committed in resistance to his divine authority. And after subjecting himself to death on a cross, he was raised up to God's right hand as Lord and Judge, establishing a reign of love and mercy and grace under which every subject is truly free and where at his return every wrong will be righted, every injustice called to account, every conflict resolved in peace and joy. His kingdom will have no end. Because that's true, you see, because real justice will be done by the Lord Jesus. We can live in submission even actually when things don't quite go right. And we can live the kind of life that actually will show the truth of Jesus' good judgments to the world. The most truly political act anyone can undertake is to become a subject of this king. 
and subject to him, our calling is to live together as his people in such a way that his judgments are seen to be the true and beautiful and good thing that they are for the flourishing, for the goodness of the world. So the whole world will come to give him the respect and honour that are rightfully his. It turns out, actually, that that life together is what the rest of Romans is all about. That's exactly where Paul's going for the rest of the, the end of this letter. How to live that kind of life under the rule of the Lord Jesus, a rule where serving him actually brings us perfect freedom. That's what we need God to do in our lives, that we might be subject not only to the earthly authorities, but subject even more than that from the very depths of our hearts to the Lord Jesus. And if we do that, actually, that's really, that's what's going to change the world as we stretch out with that message of the risen king to the world and live out his love and grace together. Uh, what's going to change on May 21? I don't know. Maybe lots, maybe not very much. What won't change is that Jesus is the king. And so let's pray that actually he would rule in our hearts and our lives together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you've given us the Lord Jesus, that you've raised up a king, a lord, to rule over us in perfect justice and peace and righteousness and goodness and beauty and love and truth. We so need that in our world. Even somewhere here, Father, we're so thankful and grateful for the kind of government we have in our country, where even though it's not perfect, even though real deep injustices do happen, where people do hurt one another and mistreat one another, nonetheless, Father, we'd much rather live here than in many other parts of the world. We thank you for that gift of good government. And yet we know that it's not perfect. We know that it can't bring in your kingdom. And so we long to be people who more and more can submit our lives to the Lord Jesus, can live under his rule and authority. And so together as your people start to live out the kind of justice and grace and peace that he holds out to us. May that, Father, as you work that in us by your spirit, be a witness to the world around us that this is what it looks like to be under the true Lord, to live this kind of peace and community together. Father, we pray that that would be something that draws people to your church and to the Lord Jesus and a sign to the authorities of the world that this is how best to lead and to rule. Father, we long for the Lord's return to set all these things right once and for all and so uh, by your spirit give us the strength to live for him in the meantime as we wait and the confidence that one day he will return, he will put everything that has gone wrong right again and his kingdom will have no end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.